Well, we want to continue pressing on the upward way. That's the banner that we have swinging over these marvelous chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 and 7 have become known through centuries of time as the great Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me in your Bibles for this ongoing exposition of this greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5. We've come to verse 4 on this particular Lord's Day. No doubt all of us here, practically all of us, I think, would remember the name Peter Jennings, journalist and news anchor for World News Tonight on ABC, a career that spanned 22 years. Tragically, he died at the age of 67 with complications of lung cancer. I can still vividly remember his last courageous broadcast and the sober announcement about his health condition that he himself made. Just a few years before his death, ABC was preparing to air a television special entitled Peter Jennings Reporting the Search for Jesus. Christianity Today Journal interviewed him before the special was broadcast. In that magazine was a large color picture of Jennings posing in a Jerusalem marketplace. What was almost disorienting at first for me was to see him holding a rather large study Bible in his hand. I remember wondering, even whispering a prayer, that such a man of influence like Jennings would perhaps find the real Jesus as his own personal savior. And now I can only hope that that may have been the case. During that Christianity Today interview, Jennings was asked the question, what would you have liked, what would you have liked to ask Jesus yourself? The reporter speaking to Jennings. After saying that he would like to ask Jesus a number of different things, like how difficult was it to ally yourself so specifically with the outcasts of society, with the likes of a Mary Magdalene or, or crooked tax collectors. But Jennings proposed just one key question he would ask of Jesus. And what he said, of course, particularly intrigued me. He said he would like to ask Jesus this question. What did you think the consequences of your preaching would be? What did you think, Jesus, that the consequences of your preaching would be? I think that question uh, just reminds us of what an excellent journalist Peter Jennings made 
Probably the most powerful of all the sermons that Jesus preached is this one, this Sermon on the Mount. In this case, neither Jennings nor we have to wonder or speculate much about the consequences of Jesus preaching this sermon. You will remember that at the close of the sermon, Jesus predicts the consequences of his preaching And beloved, he tells us in advance, right at the end of the sermon, there will be dire consequences. You will remember that at that close of the sermon, chapter 7, Jesus tells that story of the wise builder and the foolish builder. One built his house upon a rock foundation the other upon shifting sand, you know what happens. The great storm called life breaks upon the two houses. The house built upon the rock stands in the day of the blast, while we are told that the foolish man, who heard the same message but did not heed it, suffered destruction. Not mere destruction, the scriptures in its own language, always being exact, never exaggerates, is telling us that the consequences of hearing the word of Christ and not acting on it is an absolutely devastating, irreparable destruction. We're told this over and over again in the word of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You'll remember, I trust, as we continue this study, our interpretive principle, how we interpret this rightly, that the Sermon on the Mount is not mere moral and ethical teaching leading to a kind of legalistic or pious view of life, its standards are are purposely set so high by Jesus that the disciples will be told that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees if they are to have any hope of seeing the kingdom of heaven. I I can't help but think of the non-Pharisee fisherman Peter in that crowd hearing Jesus say, Unless you are more righteous than the most righteous Pharisee you know, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I don't know, I, like Jack and Jill that went up the hill <laughs> to fetch a pail of water, and Jack fell down, Jill whatever, and came tumbling after. I, I just sort of see Peter having followed Jesus for a little while and then hearing the demands of Christ for kingdom people tumbling down the mount upon which this sermon was preached. The sermon reveals to us a standard of righteous living so high that only Christ could achieve it. That we cannot even begin to press on the upward way unless we are found in him, not having a righteousness of our own 
by some keeping of the law, but rather a righteousness imputed to us by the saving virtue of Christ alone. That is his own righteousness. The perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the holy one veiled in flesh. His alone is a righteousness that exceeds the greatest of the righteousness of any Pharisee of that day. Many have failed to keep Matthew 5, 6 and 7 in this gospel context. And I tell you, this has led to a woefully inadequate view of what Christ purposed to accomplish in the preaching of it. Had Peter Jennings interviewed Christ directly and asked what his purpose was in preaching the Sermon on the Mount, we may have heard something like this. Jesus would have said, Peter, the purpose of that sermon, misunderstood and misinterpreted by so many, was to point out the futility of any sinner trying to live up to my kingdom standards without the transformed life, the changed heart that I alone must bring by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord. And the only righteousness that counts is that which belongs to Jesus, which in grace to every believer he gives as a gift. I want to give you the biblical proof of context on this issue before we go further in the study. I want you to just glance with me at two verses before the sermon begins. Two verses back in chapter 4. So chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17. In verse 17, we read, From that time, which is to say from now on, Jesus began to preach and say... What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23, look at verse 23. Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And his message, if it were Taken down to the one word is that word, repent. So this is how we know that the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 now of chapter 5, have actually a gospel purpose, not a mere moral, religious, or ethical purpose. Or again, with these few concise words, I'm saying to you that the Sermon on the Mount is declaring to us what it means to repent. The Beatitudes, in fact, are pointing out to us what it is we need to repent of. To live under the authority and the Lordship of Christ will require first our sorrow for sin and repentance. It is the abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that he will usher in. I've come that you might have life, not that you may attain it or earn it or somehow achieve it, 
but that I might give it. And that you having that life which I alone can bring, you will experience abundant life indeed. One of my theologian heroes of all time, John Calvin, would say this, and I quote, The Sermon on the Mount is the scepter by which King Jesus rules his people. Calvin could say more in one sentence than I could say in three sermons. I love that. Let me say it again for you. The Sermon on the Mount is the scepter by which King Jesus rules his people. It is his kingdom manifesto. Last week, we saw that the blessing of poverty was not at all about material or uh, financial or monetary poverty. Remember the guy who said, I've been rich. And I've been poor. Believe you me, rich is better. Humanly speaking, he was right. As far as life in this temporary material world would go. But this blessing of poverty in verse 3, remember, was poverty not of the bank account, but poverty of spirit. Only those who can lay no claim on the kingdom, those who by the grace of God have been humbled to see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, only those who are beggars of God's mercy are the truly blessed, those who inherit the kingdom of God. That was a watershed message, by the way, if you're unable to be with us last Lord's Day, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the CD of that sermon or hear it as we broadcast on the Internet. But now we've come to the second of the Beatitudes. The second of these Beatitudes is found in verse four. And really, it flows out of the first one. In fact, you might see each of these Beatitudes as steps along the way to saving faith in Jesus Christ and a life lived by faith, walking in the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Well, let's look at this week's blessing. Verse 4. Blessed are those that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Surely you see how naturally this flows out of the first. One comes to the discovery that they have nothing to offer God but their sin. Their true spiritual condition is exposed. And the resulting deep emotion of the contrite soul is to grieve, to mourn both the loss of their imagined self-righteousness, for these are only the beggar's filthy rags, right? All your righteousness, all my righteousness, our self-righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And we come to that discovery, we grieve over the offense of our sins Against a thrice holy God as he is about to turn his face from us. 
Indeed, God has declared, has he not? It is your sin which has separated you from me. And I want to tell you, that is a sorry state of affairs. That is a mournful thing. So how much more desperate a situation do you think a sinner could have? Spiritually bankrupt, offensive to God and turned away from him. And it is in the midst of that plight that Jesus cries out again, blessed, blessed, blessed. For only when one has revealed to themselves their poverty and spirit and as a result mourns and grieves over their sin is one made ready to inherit the kingdom and with it all the comforts of God that flow toward a repentant heart. Blessed are those who mourn. I have to confess that I have often spoken these words to broken-hearted people, loved ones, grieving the loss of a loved one. And it is true that God does comfort those who must endure such sorrow. He is the God of all comfort. We mourn and we grieve and we express sorrow at such times. And there is real comfort because God bends low to those who are grieving in that way. What comforts we have in the scriptures to carry us to the bedside of dying saints or to speak of at the funeral home. But Matthew 5, 4, however, is not addressing itself to that kind of sorrow. The sorrow and grief, the blessed who mourn, are those who have gone after purity in their own strength and resources only to find they cannot achieve it. They are spiritually destitute and morally corrupt throughout in the sight of God. Indeed, they have discovered something of the depths of depravity in their own souls they had never seen before because it takes the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes to see one's true condition. That, my friends, is not a worldly sorrow, but what the Bible defines as a God-given or a godly sorrow that leads to a mourning and grieving repentance before a holy God brings us Low. The great preacher of All Saints Church in London, now with the Lord, John R. W. Stott, once polled his congregation as to what led them to become Christians. The overwhelming majority, he discovered, responded that it had been some very desperate time in their life. They had reached some end of the rope experience in life and turned to God. Now, I've heard many such testimonies myself over the years and would like to add uh, my own somewhat extended observation to that of Dr. Stotts. And it is this. I get a bit concerned with that person 
who speaks warmly of how God delivered them or brought them through some difficult or even excruciating circumstance and how ever since they have pursued religion and church life. They may be saying that God came to them in the midst of some great pain of some great loss found them grieving and mourning their situation, and then fulfilled to them the promise of Matthew 5, 4. God helped them and comforted them. Things, in other words, we would say, kind of worked out. Now, perhaps many did hear the gospel in such difficult days and were made sensitive to life-giving truth. But my friends... I feel far more confident when I hear a person, even so perhaps someone who's gone through similar straits, tell how their trouble in the life and their reaction to it was the means by which God perhaps revealed the true condition of their hearts. On the basis of biblical doctrine, I am far more confident about the kind of sinner who is saying that God brought them to a place where they grieve not only the consequences of sin in a fallen world, worldly sorrow, but that God revealed first and foremost the actual sin that was ruling their hearts and minds and was holding them in a cruel bondage to sin, Satan, and self. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he is talking about those who are not merely sorry about their problems in life, or even sorry because somehow they've reaped what they have sown, or sorry, as many are, because they, well, they got caught. There are some so-called tears of repentance which have made us question whether one's sorrow is over the sin or over its consequences. A notable evangelist may, with tears streaming down his cheeks, publicly confess to immorality. Or even a world leader may apologize for his undisciplined life. But too often are we not left to wonder if such momentary sorrow is merely a means to escape accountability. Only God can and will ultimately judge such matters. But clearly Jesus is speaking here in our text about a Holy Spirit wrought Genuine sorrow for sin that leads to repentance and will, in fact, be met, the Beatitude says, with the great comforts of God. Blessed are those who mourn their true condition before an all-seeing and holy God. They mourn and God rushes in with the comfort with the good news of the forgiveness of sin. It really is important that we understand what this grieving and mourning is if one is to know the blessedness of comfort reserved for such. Now, this observation may help us. You know, there are only two times in all the gospel record that Jesus is said 
to have wept. His Old Testament title from the prophet was Man of Sorrows and Acquainted with Grief. It's surprising, perhaps, that we only find two occasions where actual tears moisten the cheeks of our Lord Jesus. In both of those accounts, only two, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief in both of them is weeping over sin and unbelief. Clearly not his own sin and not his own unbelief. His friend Lazarus, for example, has died. He comes to the tomb and we read that Jesus wept. It may be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it also may be among the most profound. You study the context of that narrative, you will discover that Jesus did not weep at the loss of his loved one, Lazarus. He knew he would momentarily raise him from the dead. The text tells us that he wept for the unbelief of those gathered around him. The second time, we have Jesus mourning and weeping. I believe with actual tears upon his face is when he sits for a while overlooking his beloved Jerusalem, the center of worship for his people, Israel. And there he cries, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not have it. Jesus is weeping over rebellion and sin and unbelief. What do we learn? God in Christ mourns over the sins of his people. Even now, 2,000 plus years later, we read in the Bible that God in his Holy Spirit, listen, is not just quenched, but that he grieves by what? The sin of his people. God hates sin. But the same God grieves over sin. What makes you and I sorry? What makes you and I grieve? What do we mourn? The answer to that question will say a whole lot about our relationship to God. And whether or not we have ever tasted the true beatitude or blessing of what it is to be comforted out of our sin and disobedience. Whether or not we have ever really experienced a godly sorrow and repentance that leads to life. That's the truth that this particular beatitude is testing today. You don't have to turn there, but over in the Gospel of Luke at chapter 6 and verse 25... Jesus actually there gives the reverse of this beatitude. I'm not sure uh, what we should call the opposite of a beatitudo, a blessing. Uh, maybe we should call it a curse or at best a warning. 
Jesus called it a woe. Here's what he says there. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It seems that we are being taught that you can laugh now. Go ahead. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Laugh now. And cry and weep in hell forever. Or you can mourn your sin now and rejoice in heaven forever. Do you know of any other alternatives? I don't. Remember that Peter Jennings interview? One of the questions he would have liked to ask Jesus had to do with the company he kept. He did refer to that. In the Gospel of Luke, again, chapter 7, we have a deeply stained, immoral woman who falls at his feet. We read that she began to wash the feet of Jesus, not this time with the traditional towel and basin, but, but literally with her hair. And the water provided for this washing were, were from her acrimonious glands. Uh, they were from her tears. I think that then she is the perfect picture of Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why did she weep? Unlike the self-righteous Pharisee who was hosting this event, she had the grace of God operating in her heart. She came to see herself as poor in spirit. She came to see her sin in the light of Christ's purity and perfection. With nothing to bring but her helplessness at his feet, she mourns her past with its sin and its stain. And with eyes full of faith and eyes full of tears, she knows that someday this is the man who will take the journey and Calvary will cover it all. Jesus points to her tears and her contrite spirit on that day and listen to what he said to the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Uh, that's the equivalent in that day of a woman laying down any earthly glory at all. She couldn't get any lower. For this reason, I say unto you, her sins. And then Jesus says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. That's the comfort. Blessed are those who mourn over their true sinful condition and see the grace of God through eyes cleansed with tears. Now, for the most part today, we've my time is quickly fleeing. It's going. 
We've dealt with the first part of the beatitude, the matter of grieving and mourning our sinful condition. But Jesus speaks of a comfort to those who mourn and repent of their sin. Jesus demonstrates the true nature of this comfort when he turns from speaking to that Pharisee, remember, and addresses the woman personally and directly. Now, this is what Jesus said to her after he finished speaking to that Pharisee. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Listen, go in peace. God in Christ, the God of righteous wrath and indignation towards sinners, would say to such whose sins were many, Shalom, my daughter. One of my dear teachers, my mentor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who went home to be with the Lord the very week that I began my ministry here from this pulpit. I quote him here. He taught me so much. Dr. Boyce said, quote, there is no comfort to compare with the comfort given a man or a woman. A sinner by God himself. There is no comfort to compare with the comfort that God gives to a sinner himself. The Apostle James learned it along with the other apostles. He writes in his epistle that we ought to be from time to time, you know, miserable and mourn and weep. To let our silly laughter be turned to mourning. Our joy to gloom, so that we might humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then James says, because he will comfort you and exalt you. In the prophetic utterances of Isaiah, after listing chapter after chapter after chapter of Israel's great iniquity and their sins, comes a shout through the darkness. You know what it is. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Tell them that their sins have been taken away. This is what we have in Christ and only in Christ. Godly sorrow. Sovereign spirit wrought repentance. Such repentance leads to everlasting life and an eternity of comforts. 